I recently saw the Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. It was pretty good, but I do think that any movie that's got a Queen soundtrack is probably going to be pretty good. Anyway, like in all movies that have a music industry element, inevitably, the protagonists end up in a recording studio. And any recording studio has to have a recording engineer. The way the director chose to depict the engineer, which is similar to most movies, is a bit of a lifeless knob pusher, with one elbow rested on the recording surface, head rested in that hand, and the other hand aimlessly turning some dials. Meanwhile, you have a guy in a suit barking orders at this poor schlub, while the band members behave different degrees of irrational on the other side of the glass, while a multitude of other colorful characters are just kind of there lounging, ingesting their inebriant of choice. Well, that's the cliché, anyways. There's one other person I know who loves a good cliché just as much as I do, and that's my next guest, Simon Larochette. But Simon can appreciate the recording engineer cliches all the better, because he is a recording engineer. But it gets more complex, because he's also the person who finds the people to record. He owns the equipment, takes care of the studio finances, and sometimes plays with the band. But he does push knobs and turn dials as well. I first met Simon when we were both about 10 years old, We played video games together, and we also both played trumpet in our junior high school band. But in the 15 years since he's left Halifax, he has completed the recording program at the Ontario Institute of Audio Recording Technology, and since has begun teaching at the same school. He has performed live and performs on studio albums with a touring band. And he's played instruments such as trumpet, bass, electric guitar, and several others on these recordings. But since 2011, Simon has been building up his unofficial second home, the Sugar Shack Recording Studio in London, Ontario. It's here where he's crafted a reputation and has recorded over 150 different musical works. On top of that, he has actually just recently set up an additional studio. So if you've ever seen those recording engineer movie cliches and wondered what those people actually do, or envied the rock and roll lifestyle of music professionals and thought to yourself, yeah, that's the life for me. Then stay tuned because this is Mike Syme with How to Be an Audio Engineer. Simon is joining me today via FaceTime, my first ever correspondence interview, as he's sitting in his vocal recording booth in the Sugar Shack over in London, Ontario. Simon, thanks very much for talking to me today. I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. My pleasure. And I appreciate all the more you taking the time to talk to me because you are definitely one of the busiest people I know. Do you think you're busy in your own opinion? It's Well, I think anyone with a small, like any entrepreneur, small business owner can attest to it's like a different kind of busyness because a work day for me is like, if I'm lucky, it's 10 hours. If I'm unlucky, it's 14 hours. Like I had a group in last week for four days straight. So someone's like, can we do anything next week? And it's like Wednesday to Saturday, absolutely not because I just need like the couple hours before and after my work day to like do dishes to cook. It's a different kind of busy when you when you run your own business, I think. Right, so I, I get caught up in you being a busy entrepreneur. Sometimes I forget that the business you are running is recording music. 
So besides actually just running the business and putting your head down, you actually have to be there as well to help bands record yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's just, and that's that's the whole other side of the business is knowing all the technical stuff. Like, oh yeah, the sound you're looking for is this type of guitar amp that was only built in the 70s and I have one of those guitar amps or I have something that sounds like it, whatever that might be. Um, a lot of times it's also just researching recording techniques. Uh, I had a band that was like, we want to sound like this band from the 90s and then I researched the album and what guitar pedals they use, what types of guitars, what amps, and then I got some of those things or at least close approximations. Um, and then in the end, I, two years later when the album was done, I'd see posts online and it'd be like, sounds like this band. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> Not like so much that it's a ripoff, but certainly in the style of it. So Inspired by. Yeah, inspired by, yeah. <laughs> when I learned what you did, like as a recording engineer, I knew that you simply recorded music, but clearly you have some influence. Like if you're helping pick out guitar amps, you have some influence over what the final sound will be. So how is what you do as a recording engineer different from, I don't know, like a band's producer or a manager? Uh, it's a little more of a gray area these days. Like what, what it used to be is like people like me would be the recording engineer. You'd go and you'd work in a studio and then the artists who would come into the studio would have a producer. And then you just were the guy who fiddled with the knobs and stuff and, and kind of did that stuff. And the producer would make the calls. You'd be like, okay, well, I put this microphone on here. And the producer would be like, no, change it. Or yeah, that's good. Uh, nowadays, it's more of an all-encompassing job. Like I end up being the engineer, the producer, the band manager, the band member, and the uh, therapist. <laughs> like, Because, you, you, you know, the singer's not singing well and they're feeling down. And it's like, well, no, 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 think of it this way. And kind of, you know, it's more of like an all-encompassing. Like the producer might actually help them write their songs. And then he also has the stamp of like, that sounds good. But yeah, it, it, nowadays, recording setups are more likely... Um, a one-man show in that sense, like of like the producer is also the guy running the computer and also the guy helping with the songs and also the guy moving the microphones. And so for so. that uh, recording aspect, is that one of those things where, I mean, you can either accomplish what the band wants or not? Like you can either do it or not. That's not something that would necessarily set you apart? Uh, Yeah, I think that that's pretty fair. Like it's actually to make things really polished i think is is at a certain point isn't the hardest thing to do and making something very unrefined isn't the hardest thing to do but it's finding a middle ground um and, the, and what's funny is that sometimes people actually want to work with you because they heard something you did that didn't sound good my best example is i, I recorded a band in like probably 2011 i think 2010 2011 so i recorded the band playing Someone else was in charge of mixing the songs. So they took the files and put them all together. And, you know, you, you, the idea is to make it into a palatable product that you can listen to and understand and hear and enjoy. But they did the opposite of that. They turned it into something that was like abrasive, difficult to listen to, uh, very like distorted. Intentionally? And, and like Intentionally, yeah. And I thought, well, that's too bad. That's it for that band. And they went on to be the most successful band that I've worked with. And people have come to work with me. Oh, we really want to work with you because you worked on that one thing and it sounds terrible. It, it's a, it's like punk music, right? So it speaks less to like, we want to sound terrible, but more to like, well, that's probably what they asked to have and that's what they were given. And that's that's always stuck with me. And that's been a thing where sometimes people will come back to me and say like, it sounds too good. And 
make make it sound worse. And I think some I've heard stories where some recording engineers refuse to. They're like, no, I don't want my name on it. Bring it somewhere else. I'll just do it for them because that's what they want. It, it's a customer service industry. So, and again, I'm not here to express myself as a producer or as a recording engineer and put my own stamp on it. Inevitably, I do. But really, I'm just providing a service to like make the music we created in our heads into something that we can distribute and give to people and, and you know, show our intentions. And um, and I'm like, yes, I can do that. Does it happen often that you disagree with your clients? Like, what if they make requests and you're just like, man, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, I've learned to just default to my clients because they're paying me and I'm providing them a service. Uh Sometimes I've disagreed with them, but I'll still go along with it. And and regardless of whether it is what I think is the right idea or not, they're the ones who have to live with it the rest of their lives. Like if you think about it, I've I've worked on many, many, many projects. Like for them, they might only put out five in their life or one. Sometimes people put something out and then they're like, ah, music's just not really for me. And they'll play music for fun down the line, but they might not release music online and so I have to realize like they have to live with their art I don't have to live with their art it's something that my name is on but I'd much rather have like a happier client than something than fighting them on something that really like it's like well it's their music I can't imagine that anybody when they're listening to music is aware of this stuff that goes on behind the scenes and we haven't even discussed very much yet 99% of people who hear music just hear music they just think that everyone sat down and played the song once when in reality like Metallica's Black Album took like 18 months to record like it's it, they didn't just play those songs and it's like they took ages like that's like a year and a half is to just be working on one like piece of art like that is a long time do you have any favorite styles of music or genres that is more fun for you to record or work on well, I wouldn't say it's a style, but it's a, like types of recording. Like, and, and really it depends on my mood, but I really enjoy when a bunch of people play music together. So a lot of times in music, you'll record to a metronome, you'll do the drums, then you'll record the bass, then you'll record the guitar, and it's very like surgical. My favorite is when everyone plays their instruments together. And for some styles, that's going to turn out and sound shitty. For some styles, it's going to sound amazing and it'll be like the greatest thing you've heard. Like for me, it's more it's not styles of music that are more fun, but it's styles of recording. Um, Do you have any famous examples of that kind of group recording? It, well, actually, if you're listening to like country music from like the 50s or the 60s or something like most of that stuff, that's like you listen to Patsy Cline crazy. Like that's just a bunch of musicians like playing in the room. Incredible, incredible song, incredible recording. And I, I've never liked a cover of it because to me, the recording of it is so perfect. And when I got into, I got into recording because I liked heavy metal and I was like, I want to record heavy metal. And then I realized quickly that heavy metal was very um, precision based and very much like, yeah, you record the drummer, you fix it all, you make it sound better. Then you record the bass player, you fix it all, you make it sound better. Then you record the guitar players, you fix it all, you make it sound better. Um, but then I got, I liked working on punk bands more because I would just record them all playing together. If you have a drummer just play to a metronome, and then you have that drummer play to a metronome and the whole band playing in his ears, it's much better. To me, there's like a magic in that. And and I would say arguably that the the recordings I've done where everything is more natural I think they've all been more successful 
than ones where everything was made perfect. I, I'm sure that would surprise a lot of people hearing that the less perfect music is the more successful kind. It has more to do with the fact that the musicians performed something more convincing and more emotional and more interesting without making it all perfect. Like they just, you know, playing it all together. So I've been to your studio two or three times. And granted, I haven't actually seen any recording sessions, but I do find your vast array of equipment so interesting. Do you have any idea how many pieces of equipment you have? How many pieces of equipment? Yeah, like when you're talking about making that band you mentioned earlier sound like a band from the 90s with a special guitar amp and different pedals. Uh, I'd approximate it so that I'd say my equipment falls into like three categories. And uh, one category is instruments, which I have maybe 30 different instruments. Like I have like 15 guitars a couple bass guitars, a piano, two electric keyboards, uh, four drum kits, you know, instruments. It's like 30 like nice pieces. I'd say the next category would be like the actual recording equipment. So the things that when you look at a picture of a recording studio, you see them all stacked up on in the desk and you're like, I don't know what any of that does. And those are the most expensive part of recording that in microphones, right? So I'd say that kind of falls into one category, microphones and what's called outboard gear. So you see all the lights and panels and knobs and things uh, I don't know that maybe I've got like microphones, probably like 20 different, maybe 20, 25. And then uh, the outboard gear, maybe like 15, 10, 15 pieces. But I mean, the outboard gear, it's like I've got one that cost me 50 bucks and I've got one that cost me 5000 bucks. <laughs> like it's it's a sliding scale. Um, and then and then the rest of the stuff is like miscellaneous. Like I have like guitar amps and, and cabinets and I have uh guitar pedals that change the sound i have cables i have lamps Sorry, i have lamps? colored lighting yeah lamps i could just have i have like probably like seven or eight lamps around the so studio do the lamps have a musical intention no no musical intention <laughs> oh but the musical intention is creating vibe and 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 you know like uh, just make people comfortable yeah exactly yeah and then, and then there's just like all the miscellaneous stuff you need. Like, you know, someone will be like, do you have an iPhone charger? My iPhone's dying and it has all the words on it. I need to see it. And I'm like, what kind of, or not even, not even iPhone. Like what kind of phone is it? It's a Samsung from like 2013. I'm like, I think it's this connector and I just have it. So, um, that's kind of like, yeah, miscellaneous stuff. I mean, to me, that sounds like you have a lot of equipment. So what's separating you from these bigger studios? Like where does the sugar shack fit? with these other studios, like the kinds you see in the movies? When I came in, I think the recording industry was kind of in, in flux. Like it was more like, oh, the big studios were not doing well and they weren't sure if the home studios were going to take over. But in that time that I've been running, it's kind of like my type of studio has become like the middle of the road. Like there's really nice million dollar studios that are busy and make money, um, but many less than there were back in the day. Um, and then there's people with home studios, but the thing is one artist might say, okay, we're going to record the drums in the million dollar studio because you can't fake the size of the room. Well, you can fake it, but if you really want the authentic thing, the best thing you go into this big room, it's been purpose built for drums. Then you go to my studio and you record guitars because I have a bunch of different guitars, a bunch of different amps, and it's a little bit cheaper. You can spend more time on it. And then they might go home and record themselves singing because they have a they have a little booth in their basement and they have the same microphone I have and they have the same thing that only costs them maybe like $5,000 but it's generally a professional setup so there's more it's more like a tiered industry 
Whereas before it was like, if you wanted a professional quality sign, you had to go to the top tier. So, I mean, top tier or not, I mean, I recently saw that you had a Juno-nominated band play a special set for the CBC at the Sugar Shack. Yeah. For a yeah. middle-of-the-road studio. Is that a big deal for you? Uh, Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Like, you think it's going to be a big deal because you're like, oh, man, you know, all these people are going to be here. And it's it, the band was White Horse. And they're filming a thing for, like, a Juno series since the Junos are happening here. And But in the end, it was just another thing like i actually didn't really do much work on it because because it was a cbc thing they have their own recording engineer i just kind of helped him set up made sure everything worked okay that he needed to use um but like most things again like you know when you're flying somewhere and you're like oh it's going to be so crazy when i get there and then you get there and you're like oh it's just a little bit different but it's like oh a very successful artist you know is coming in and stuff but they're just like everyone else and they just do their thing and they perform and they're talented and it just, it was good fodder for the internet. I, I watched the video and it looked really cool. Oh, it looked great. I hope you got to use some of those lamps you were talking about. I, I absolutely did. Like, they were, that's the thing. They were like, oh, great, you have all these lamps. We can, like, put these special bulbs in them and stuff. And I was like, all right. So you're a middle-of-the-road studio, but at the same time, you have these Juno-nominated bands playing sets for the CBC in your space. So where, where you're at in your career, could I book some time? At your studio, like if, if I gave you a call or sent you a message and said, hey, my name's Mike, I'd like to record some songs at your studio. I'm not a professional, but, you know, I just have these songs I want to record. Would you take the time to work with me or would you maybe recommend I go somewhere else? Yeah, probably that for that. But I've done those kind of gigs before. I used to just take anything and some of them were disastrous and some of them actually were like one girl. She was like, I just work a job like I'm not a really a musician, but I play guitar and I wrote a couple songs and I just want to come in and sing them and play them at the same time. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Sure. Sounds cool. Like I had time in my schedule. And then she came in and recorded the songs like live, just like playing guitar and singing at the same time. Uh, we record for like not even a whole day. Like it's like a half a day. Beautiful voice. Great songs. And then she ends up like one of the songs goes up on Spotify or something and she gets like a million hits on it. I could have never guessed. And we spent literally an afternoon working on it. The scenario you just gave me was basically the scenario she gave me. And then she goes on to make more money than the people that I know. You know, like a, a million plays on Spotify might make you somewhere between like five and ten thousand um, dollars. So that's the thing that I worry about is as I progress in my career and I start to turn away some of these things it's like you never know you might turn someone away and they end up being like the next big thing but it's a risk you have to take so I want to get to your origin story Simon because it's slightly more interesting than average in so far as you know you were born in France you moved here when you were quite young the context is that uh, I was the fourth uh, fourth child in my family and two months after I was born was when my family moved to Canada uh, we lived somewhere for five years in a place, Kentville, Nova Scotia. Uh, and then we moved to Wolfville, Nova Scotia. We lived there for five years. And then when we moved to Halifax, when I was about 10 years old, that's when I met you. So, Did you have a musical element in your life in those first 10 years in rural Nova Scotia? Oh, yeah, yeah. I started violin when I was like... I think five, maybe four or five, because all my siblings played violin. My mom was really... The Suzuki method, specifically. Suzuki uh, method? Yeah. The Suzuki method is a, is like a pedagogy of, of teaching developed by a guy, Shinichi Suzuki, in, in Japan. He's a Japanese man, and it's like a worldwide... I don't know if I'd say phenomenon, but it's a worldwide method that's used all over, like in America, I think in Europe too. And I think there's a lot of ear training involved 
which kind of, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense because I've ended up being a recording engineer and I'm good at learning things by year. Um, but that was like, that was my start. I think I did that for like nine years. Were you one of those kids that talked about what they wanted to do when they grew up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? I was oh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to be like, when I was like really little, I was like, I want to be a construction worker. And then I got older and I was like, I want to be an architect. And then I did calculus in high school and I was like, I don't want to be an architect. Um, I also, just just being able to see my siblings, because uh, both my brothers went to university and then decided against it. Like, just basically were like, that's actually not what I want to do. And then pursued music and they have careers in music. So I was able to see that pretty early on in my life of like, well, yeah, you don't just decide, oh, I'm going to do that in university and then do it and then get a job and be happy. It's fine. I mean, I agree with you, but that's usually not the type of thing that you know until hindsight. Yeah. So uh, getting to be the being the youngest of four and having like watching my siblings kind of go through that. Uh, was really helpful to me because even like by the time I got to the end of high school, I was like, I'm definitely not going to university. Like I knew that. So Was that just because you knew that university wasn't the best place to pursue music, the kind of music you wanted to pursue? I, I didn't. Well, like I knew I wanted to do something with music, but I was more interested in like computers because I didn't really know of like career. Like the only um, it's kind of like high school sports like if you do music in high school and you do sports in high school there's one stream coming out of there and it's like going to university and playing sports or going to university and doing music and like studying music and I just knew from like playing guitar and like you and I played trumpet together like I did trumpet from like grade six until basically grade 11 I think and but I knew that like I didn't want to study trumpet and like practice trumpet eight hours a day and I don't know that's not really like in my like I know that I don't and it sounds funny but I know I don't like reading books I love reading things online I read tons of news I read tons of articles and stuff online and, and about my work and all that but I just really don't like sitting down and reading a book like that's just and it's the same with like music like I don't love sitting down and practicing music it's a bad habit like I should be able to and I and I do sometimes if I have to now and like if I'm playing with someone but I don't love it so I was like do I want to do like four years of that yeah, that must have been, now that I think about it, that must have been really helpful for you to watch your siblings go through this process of, you know, seeing that university isn't necessarily the only option, yeah. at least straight out of high school. Yeah. And for the and for my parents to have witnessed that too, like, because eventually being like, hey, I'm going to go to this like career college for recording music. And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, But if I was, you know, my oldest brother is like, yeah, well, you're going to go to university hundred percent. No question. It's like, but I don't want to, I want to do something else. By the time you did get around to graduating high school, did you know then, or at least have some idea that you might be going to this recording school in London, Ontario? No, no, no. Uh, after high school, I took a year off um, cause I just really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wanted to move. Like I lit, so I lived up in Thunder Bay. I went to high school up there and it was a good time. I had a good time there, but I just kind of knew it wasn't the place for me. Um, I knew, I, I knew that's not where I could be successful doing what I wanted to do. So I decided to move. I found the school online. I was just bored in my room. I was probably like playing video games or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I saw a thing about this school once I looked it up. It seemed like it was a scam cause it looked too good to be true. And a lot of people will do like 10 years of recording and then go to a school like this. But I was young. I was like 19. And I decided like, I just want to learn it the right way the first time. So I went there with the idea of like, I'm going to learn everything the right way the first time. Uh, and I'm going to open my own studio eventually. That's just what I'm going to do. 
I got lucky because I loved music. I loved critical listening and listening to music all the time. And I loved computers and I'm very like adept at computers. But well, like I, I couldn't have known what the actual business would be like. I knew nothing about the recording business. I got lucky that I made the choice and it was the right career because a lot of people choose that, choose that school. They choose university like my brothers and sister. Um, they choose school and then they realize that's not what I want to do. I just happened to pick the right thing. I happened to get a few lucky breaks after school to get me into where I wanted to do and I was willing to put the work in. The school just happened to be a perfect fit and the industry happened to be a perfect fit for my character too. So I, I find that that's what I find so fascinating because the whole thing really does seem like it is a perfect fit for your character. Like when we were at your wedding, a lot of people spoke to how good looking I am. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not, no, not sorry. that. Basically how dedicated of a business person you were and how strong of a work ethic you have for this whole thing. And that's really what people were commenting on. I mean, I'm sure that you're good as an audio engineer as well but people weren't talking about that as much yeah they were talking about your business acumen and your work mm -hmm. ethic yeah it's funny because that does kind of fall into my because my whole theory about the recording industry well not even theory because i've lived it now but like you don't have to be the greatest not everyone like i try to tell people that um when someone says hey we need to record with somebody and then a, an artist says oh you should record with simon he's really easy to work with uh he's low stress uh works quickly and you'll get the product you want then they'll be like great let's book with him and then they'll be like well let's listen to some stuff that he's done but i'd say that the previous four things they they said about me those are like 70 percent of the decision to work with me and then the actual quality of my work as long as it's not below a certain threshold there, that's probably like 30% important. But Simon, you've also got this, you know, you've got an award-winning personality. And I'm sure people who work with you enjoy that aspect. Well, I honestly, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I just try to be helpful. That's the thing, honestly. Like, uh, you just got to be a good person. You just got to be helpful for people. And then, um, yeah, I could have, one of my teachers, he was like a live sound guy. And he always said like, I get a bunch of work doing live sound and stuff. And when I first started out, he's like, it wasn't because I was good. There were other people that had better equipment who were better at the job, but he was more empathetic and, and, and was able to work with people and make people feel comfortable. And like when you start out at anything, it's like if you're a real estate agent and you work on your first sale, you're not the best real estate agent. But since you're new at it, you're probably willing to jump through more hoops for your clients. And you're like, I just kind of have to do that because if I don't, they're going to just, someone else can do the job. But they're like, oh, I'm new at doing this. So I'm going to go meet them. And if they cancel on me, I'm going to go meet them again. And if they can't get there, I'm going to go pick them up and drive them like anything like that. Um, I'll waive some fees for them, even though it's, that's basically my commission, all that kind of stuff. Like you're going to do anything you can. So all this stuff, you know, <laughs> it sounds pretty tiring, like between the actual recording buying and maintaining equipment, finances, and scheduling. Does it ever get tiring just juggling all this stuff? Yeah, definitely it is. Like there's times where I'd rather not do any of that. It wasn't always that hard because at the beginning, it's like I only ever was juggling maybe two projects and then the next year it'd be four and then 10 and then so on and so forth. So that part of it, like you just kind of build up an immunity to it. Uh, like I remember a time when I wouldn't even write anything in my schedule. 
because I was really good at keeping mental schedules. And, and, and then one day I realized like, okay, now I need to make a iCal or something like, cause I'm, I can't keep track of this all. You know, if, if you put me in the position I'm in now, when I started like 10 years ago, I, I would be dead in the water in like a day. Like there's just too many tasks, you know, like, like I'm trying to think of a good example. Like right, right now I'm setting up to uh, set up a new studio where I'm not going to do any recording, but just doing listening, like just have a set of speakers and a computer and be able to do mixing and, and mastering and things like that. So yesterday I, I went to all the pawn shops on my day off to look for items that I need for the new studio. I need a new Mac keyboard. I can save myself $110 by just finding it in a pawn shop. So I did that all day. And that for my wife and I was like a day off. Like we were out. It was sunny. It was beautiful. It was cold, but whatever. Um, But really, I'm like doing business on my day off. Like I'm searching for items for the new studio. This morning, I'm, I'm meeting the piano tuner to tune the piano early in the morning. And then there's a lot of that extra stuff. It gets tiring, but now I'm kind of used to it. I always tell students that it's a learned skill. Like working a 10-hour recording day is really long. And if you've never done it before, you'd do it and you'd be like, I'm exhausted for the next two days. And that so the first time I worked a 10-hour day, I took the next two days off. I was like, oh my God, it's crazy. Now I've done like, you know, six in a row. Like I, I know how to pace myself. So the amount of work that's involved isn't just like something that, oh, I, I met, oh, Simon's so good at working long hours and stuff. It's like, it's something that I built up an immunity to you can't just start something and expect to be the best at it if you're self-employed you kind of get used to a certain like level of of uh i don't know learning all the time like you're always learning this level of excitement and learning has has that kind of diminished over the years with you know the maturing of your business yeah i I try to keep it pretty fresh like uh, like that's the thing is that this year I decided with a friend of mine like okay in January we're going to start setting up our new studio the thing is when we talked about how much equipment I have I can't afford to buy all that equipment and start a second studio but what I can afford to do is buy a computer a nice set of speakers and just the bare minimum I need to at least uh, polish up the work that I record here so for me right now there is that sense of excitement and also that sense of being broke because I'm trying to invest some of my money into the new space. So um, it's not always like that. And when I start to not feel that, I tend to want change. Why did you feel the need to set up a new mixing space anyway? Uh, well, because this this studio is like, I mean, I, I'm not responsible for building it, but it's purpose-built for recording music. And so the days that I'm just sitting there mixing music for people, uh, you know, sometimes I'm there with the artist and we're putting everything together and polishing it up, which is sometimes days of work. There's, we're only using 20% of the studio. So those are days that I could have someone else in there. And if I'm eating up the schedule with that type of work, I might as well have this place, you know, be used at its full potential. It's like if you have an, like a basement apartment in your house that you're like, well, sometimes we have family over or something. It's like, well, you're going to maybe put it on Airbnb or something like that. It's it's just the better, you know, utilizing the space. So you're trying to optimize the Sugar Shack for recording. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to optimize it for, for making money and being a source of passive income as well. Simon, I know that you've got some musical ability. Like you talked about playing violin and trumpet. And I, I've seen you play with a band. I saw you play trumpet and uh, I saw you play side guitar. Is that something that's common amongst audio engineers that to have some level of musicianship? 
usually they do at least some some extent to some extent yeah uh because i mean and that that was kind of my idea is that i went to a school that's very focused on the engineering aspect and as we say like being on the other side of the glass like on you know in front of the mixing board and all that and you tend to get really caught up in the technical aspects of it but you can't forget about the creative part of your brain um so my idea when i left the school um i said to myself like I feel like I'm too far into this world now and I need to understand what it's like to be on the other side and be the musician and be, you know, just because that seems pretty logical, right? Like to know both sides of it and, you know, to be able to empathize. So I, that's why I joined the band. I was like, oh, I'll put my musical skills. And I wasn't very good at the instruments I was playing, but good enough to get by and then learn as I went. Uh, and I bought instruments and learned instruments that I didn't know how to play before. Like I learned to the rudimentary skills of playing slide guitar and the idea was later on one day someone's going to be like oh we need slide guitar and it's like well we need to hire someone for like 50 dollars and then i could be like well i actually have one and i'll just do it right now and that's come in really handy because my my goal in this business has always been to provide a little bit extra and then have people go somewhere else and, and be like oh can you just toss some like slide guitar on this and the guy's like no i don't play slide guitar and they're like Oh, well, Simon did. <laughs> so just Simon back there, I don't know if you noticed, you dropped this word logical. Yeah. Which makes sense to me because I would have to say you're probably one of the most logical people I know. <laughs> and y you deliver this cold logic to people. <laughs> really? Well, That's interesting. Well, cold, in, cold in a Simon sense. So it's not, yeah. you know, it's not emotionless. <laughs> but it, you deliver these matter-of-fact responses. Yeah, and yeah. And you're you just are like, well, how else would it be? And yeah, then, it's true. you know, people <laughs> go away and they do some thinking and they're like, well, I mean, I guess he's right. I just, I just wish he wasn't so certain of himself. And uh, do you find you're, you know, this certain and this logical with internal decision making as well? Uh, yeah, because I'm careful and patient about reaching conclusions, but I'm happy to be wrong about things. Like that's, I think, I, I, I don't know if that's happened to me, to me in the past, but if you're too certain of yourself, like it's good to use logic and come to a conclusion set, but that doesn't always mean logic isn't always the answer. So you kind of have to be like, you know, if it, like I really try to put a lot of thought into the things I say. I, I'm kind of a stickler for details. Like if I'm telling you like about a news story, if I don't know the exact number of whatever I'm quoting, I try not to give it. Whereas I think some people would just, you know, gloss over a detail or two. And I, I remember I used to be too detail oriented and I would tell stories and I'd just be like, and then we drove 2.2 kilometers. <laughs> it's like, that's not important. Like people don't want to hear about it. I think I got better at that because in the recording industry, once I learned how everything worked, I'd always want to tell people about it and like tell the artist like, you know, okay, well, the reason I'm using this is because so, 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 and so. But sometimes people just don't give any shits like they're just like i don't care and you're just like yeah i just did that thing because it makes it sound better i mean if they ask you can always explain what you did and some people do and they want to learn from it like i try to i try to have everyone come into my business and learn something um and i also try to learn something because just because you know more about something doesn't mean you're right with the number of people you've worked with i i just imagine that you've dealt in worked with all sorts of different personalities like probably some i mean i'm imagining just this cliche of kind of a weird person but they're very talented yeah can be 
sometimes it's weird people who aren't talented. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I, like, it, but that, that's the thing. You, you get a, you get a whole, you get the whole gamut. Like it's, uh, but, but with all these different types of personalities working inside your studio, do you ever find yourself having to settle disagreements or disputes amongst band members? I've definitely been in the thick of it. I don't think I've ever been like that guy to I actually I think often I'm just like, okay, you clearly want this, you clearly want this. Where can we find the middle zone? Like that's so I'm kind of like a mediator, but I've never had like people like fist fighting or anything like that. Usually if it, the tension's that high, people just aren't around each other. They're like, okay, I'm done my things, I'm going to go and then the other guy comes in and does his thing, but definitely been in some uh not too many, but definitely in some situations where things get tense and people think of bands perhaps sometimes as a business but bands are more a family than a business and a skill that I've tried to insert in there is becoming part of the family um, so that I can be like okay this isn't good enough and then they can be mad at me because I maybe said something mean to them but I'm you know I, I, I don't just say it to piss them off but they might be like oh man Simon and stuff and then they might be mad at me and then the next day they kind of realize it's like a brotherly thing and then they're like oh, actually I think Simon might have been right or or maybe I come back and I'm like hey I was too hard on you like I'm sorry about that so um, bands are so much a family and not as much a business and that creates very complex situations and if you're really in that family and in that relationship like as a band uh, when that band stops playing and breaks up which happens 90% of the time uh, it's, it's like, it's like breaking up a relationship. Like there's weird things and you're, you, maybe you choose one of the people over the other in the divorce and like, it can get kind of, kind of hairy and people can get really, uh, personally offended. And sometimes that can even lead to legal repercussions in some cases, but very rarely, cause there's very rarely money to be had. <laughs> Where do you see yourself going with the sugar shack? Like, is this kind of thing that you think will be like, what kind of influence and impact on your life does this have? Like, um, if I'm sticking to this, it's, it's going to be not just something that influences my life. It will be the thing that, in, that dictates my entire life. Like it, it really does. Like how, how, you know, if, if all of a sudden no one, you know, something, something happens and no one wants to record with me anymore. Well, obviously that's a problem. And, and that's going to make me less money and I'm going to have to reconsider things. But that's part of why I'm trying to set the business up to be more passive income. Not because I hate doing it, but because like you need to, you need to, uh, diversify, diversify your, yeah, exactly. You got to diversify the income. Like that's like rule number one for me. And, and that's something that I'm trying to work towards right now, you know, and I try to build up other, I try to build up skills like low key. Like I know how to repair, uh, small issues on guitars, and I know how to build cables build for the studio. Cables? And that's something that, yeah, build cables. Like, oh, I need this kind of end to this kind of end. And I, I have a soldering iron. I've got solder. I've got cables. I've got everything, wow. right? Uh, that's, that's cool. That's just a little skill. But I haven't monetized that skill. So if there's any skill you can learn whilst doing your career, then, like, that's great. It's like if, if you work a job and, and you're sitting at a desk and you actually have no work to do, don't watch YouTube videos. Try to learn how to solve a Rubik's cube or something, or you what you know, whatever. Learn like Spanish, exactly. Duolingo, just hit that up. You're good to go. It's uh, so I'm always trying to think one step ahead. Like I'm always like thinking in terms of diversity. For lack of a better way to put it, do you ever you know get a little bit worried that you're kind of missing you know the the present moment? 
for all these tasks that you're doing day to day or working on different ways to diversify that you might be kind of, yeah, missing, missing the present a little bit and just getting a little caught up with planning for the future. So yeah, when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, you can be paralyzed by, yeah, like you said, not living in the moment, like you're paralyzed by like, well, what's coming next? What's coming next? And also if you have too much success, you're doing really well, you get paralyzed in like self-congratulation. So my thing is always like when something good happens, you let yourself celebrate it. Like if I were to win some award, like a big award, I'd be like, this is great. This is awesome. But that doesn't change what I'm doing. That doesn't change now that I, you know, if I win a Grammy for greatest engineer, I wouldn't be like, okay, well now I charge this much. Pat yourself on the back for one night, maybe have a bottle of champagne or something. And then the next day go back to work. You can definitely be paralyzed by too much success and then paralyzed by like not enough. Because I've seen people do it. They're doing like, okay, but then they get stressed about money. Like they did my work for X amount of years and then just realize, you know what, this isn't going to be the future for me. In my mind, I don't think I'll be running a successful, fully stocked, always people coming in recording studio, just me all the time. But I do see that this is a launching pad to own property, to own assets, to rent things out. Again, like the smart people would keep buying gear and then open up a rental company. Like that's just logic. Again, with all this stuff going on in your life, how do you how do you unwind? Like when you have a day off or you just finish work for the day, is it tough for you to switch gears? Uh, I don't find it to, again, learn skill. I, earlier in, in my career, I, it would be hard for me to kind of switch it off. Nowadays, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'd consider myself decent at compartmentalization. Like if just being like, okay, I'm done that. I'm going home. I can sleep. I'm not, you know, like, because it, it can be hard. Like, I, you know, wake up at 10, come here for 11, work until 11 sometimes, go home, hang out with my wife. We just talk. Maybe, maybe we'll watch a TV show. Maybe we won't. And then like sometimes I'll eat some food because I'm hungry. And then we like go to bed at one. It doesn't leave me a ton of time after a 12 hour work day. Um, what what but, about if you take more time off, like for a vacation? Like how practical even is a vacation for you? Not practical. It, for any entrepreneur, it's not practical. And again, the ideal scenario is that I, when I'm on vacation, I have someone working here. And that's only been a new idea in the last two years since I've had someone working like at the studio and, and, and renting the space. Um, so that's a big consideration. That's kind of why I got someone. Because, yeah, when you don't work, you don't make money. Just plain and simple. Again, I could be smarter with my money and I could put aside vacation pay if I really wanted to. But to me, it's smarter to invest that in the equipment in the studio that gains value over time. Like, you know, just small, small wins like that. To me, this is none of the stuff you really see in the news or magazine articles when you read about successful entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur from the outside, yeah, appears to be this like they were, you know, they were really talented and then they succeeded. But when you're an entrepreneur, it's way more like you're in the trenches going through those lows where you got no money and you're like, do I really want to do this? And then the highs of like, oh, someone recognized my work and, you know, gave me kudos or whatever. or You won an award or something. And then the next day you're right back in the trenches like you got to get the plumbing fixed or something like it's it's entrepreneurship is is tough. And again, I, I like it because to me, like that constant change and that constant adjustment is what makes it fun. To work on something and be truly pleased with what it is and be truly like appreciative of it, you have to have things that suck about it. It's just it's just how it goes. So as you say, I'm sure there's some days are worse than others. 
But overall, I know you really like your work. What kind of stuff might I not see from the outside that you really like about what you do? Other than just like the business of what I do, because I love the business of what I do and and kind of like getting clients and, and convincing people and building a space that's conducive to creation and, and being creative. Um, I like the psychology of it as well, where I've told people like, like people and they go, we're interested in recording, but we're not really sure we're looking at other places and stuff. And I'm like, I know if I get you in this door, my kind of approach and also once you see the space and you get to experience how comfortable it is, like I, you know, like hook, line and sinker kind of thing. And I like that. And then when people are here, I like to create the moments. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do something really wacky today and we're going to plug this thing into here and make it sound this way. And then that's the things people remember. Like I've, I have those like Philips Hue lights in the studio. I started buying them like a couple of years ago. And when I turn the color red and the whole studio goes red, like people lose their minds. Like they're like, whoa, what? Whoa. And, and they love that. Cause then it like creates this vibe. And that's like all like that creating music. Isn't just like a technical job. It's, it's a very emotional job. Like if they don't feel comfortable, they're not going to perform well. And if they don't perform well, they're not going to like it. And then they're not going to like working with me. As I said before, you have this cold, logical heart. <laughs> but then at the same time, you're clearly dialed in to what makes some people tick. And you're good at thinking, well, will this group respond well to a red light yeah. or will it weird them out? But yeah, you're, you're this weird mix of empathy and logic. But I mean, it seems like you do it quite successfully. Well, apparently, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not rich by any means, but I'm living, you know. But like, I, I mean, you're having returning yeah. clients, and you're getting new clients all the time. That's the thing is that in in one sense, I consider myself so successful, and then in another sense, I'm like, well, if you told someone like, here's the number of hours you're going to work, and here's how much money you're going to make, they'd be like, no, thank you. But maybe this ratio of, you know, money to work input, isn't so great compared to traditional jobs. And I mean, I'll just go back to my running example that I've been using as a banker. Even though you've been doing this job for almost 10 years, you really don't know what that 11th year will be like. Whereas a banker almost knows for certain what the 11th year will mm -hmm. be like. And that would kill me inside. I, can't, I couldn't do that. <laughs> but, but it's funny because you have the lifestyle, you know, hanging out with rock and roll bands all day that people in these more traditional roles dream about, at least in the, uh, at least in cliches. Yeah, it's just because it's like fun, just because I like can drink beers and work at the same time and hang out with a bunch of musicians. Like, that's a thing that often can happen in my work. You know, it's like, oh, you want a beer? Sure. And you have a beer and, and hang out with the band. Like, it's that aspect of it is fun, but there's also stresses attached to it that include money stress, that includes uh, the stresses of success or failure. Um, like, there's a lot riding on what I do sometimes, like, because people people work on a song for sometimes upwards of like five, 10 years on and one they never song? record it. Yeah. Yeah. Like they might write it when they were 18, shelve it, remember it later, rewrite it again, change some things. Then they find, then they have a band finally after five years, that band plays and tours for a while. And then they finally are like, yeah, let's record that old song you did or whatever. And then I'm in charge of not messing that up. Like, and for me, that's, that's a challenge. That's something I thrive on. But again, that's a stress that some people might not be able to handle. So I've always kind of thought that it would be nice if your recording studio was in Halifax as opposed to London. But but after this conversation, it makes me think that I probably wouldn't see you any more than I normally yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which 
would probably make me grow to resent you a little bit. I'd be yeah. thinking to myself, like, man, this guy doesn't want to spend any time with me. Yeah, I sometimes I feel like a bad friend because of that, because I'm always working. And, and then when I'm not working, like Kelly wants to see me, you know, like my wife wants to spend time with me. So I spend time with her before, like spending time with friends. And I feel I feel bad about it. And I hope that it'll be better later when I don't have to work as much. But uh, yeah, it, it's definitely it's something that that's that's something that I don't think I'm good at that I think I need to improve on is like keeping up friendships. But honestly, it's like my phone and my email and my Facebook and my Instagram and stuff is all so tied into like, I do business through all of them with people. So then when I'm getting like texts and friends are wanting to like have conversations, I'm like, I just can't like, that's like almost like my work device. I'm sure somewhere down the line, someone's been offended by that. And I, I fear, I fear for it because we're starting to have friends who have kids and we just don't really see them. And I also just assume they're busy, so I don't want to bug them. But then we just, like, don't see them. And then I feel like they're always the ones calling me. And I'm like, shit, I need to make an effort here. <laughs> like, But that's why I want to reduce my schedule down. What kind of things about your work do you really like that don't have much to do with the job itself? Uh, I just like hanging out with people. Like, if you're a solitary person, this is the worst job for you. Because every day there's, like, you know, one, two, three, four, sometimes more than five people that come into your space and hang out with you and make jokes and, and be loud and, and, you know, have a couple drinks and stuff. Sometimes some people have too many drinks. And so if you don't like hanging out with people, then bad job choice, bad, real bad job. choice. But again, like I, I should say, there are facets of my job that are solitary. Like if you're a very solitary person, you can become, you can just do like mixing where people send you files and you mix them for them. Or people send you things and you edit them for them. Like there's other parts of the job that aren't as all-encompassing as what I do. So then it could actually be a good idea for you. So you just have to know yourself. And, and know. I, I like, I love hanging out with people. Like, it's my favorite thing. The days that I'm working by myself, I'm the most bored. Not not the most bored. Like, it's interesting work, but I'm like, I, now I got to go out for a drink with my friends. Like, it works well because I work long hours, but I always get to hang out with people. So then at the end of the day, and I go home and, like, I don't feel like, oh, man, my wife's keeping me in. Like, I want to go out and hang out with my buddies. It's like, I kind of did all day. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I haven't thought of it like that, but, I mean, I guess that's kind of a double-edged sword because... If you're getting your social fix while you're working, then you don't really have any kind of yeah yeah uh, like the, there's no void there yeah, yeah it's being filled every day by other people yeah yeah so at the same time you don't feel pressure yeah exactly and maybe it causes you to neglect some of these other relationships yeah and I could be selfish I'm being selfish in a way like the 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 times I feel bad about it is that I I meet people as clients and they end up being very good friends of mine and then. Sometimes I never see those people or hang out with them. And I still would consider them dear friends of mine, like people who I adore and who I just, you know, like they make my life better. But the only times I'm ever hanging out with them is when they're like paying me to work with me. I try to be very um, cognizant of those types of things. So I got to start to wrap up here, Simon, but I have a scenario for you. So you're walking to your studio and you see that it's on fire. The whole building's ablaze. What do you run in to save? the studio cat <laughs> no, I mean, for real i think people would be pretty mad at me i have a, there's a cat who lives in the studio um all right let me put it this yeah. way you can grab winston the cat and you can throw him out the open window yeah. and he'll be fine because yeah. you know cats cats are fine what else do you grab uh i would think hard drives 
Because oh, yeah. be, well, because because like actual pieces of equipment, some of it is not replaceable uh, and like one of a kind. But the the one thing that if my business went under, I couldn't make up for is lost time. Like so, my hard drive, my main hard drive that has all my music on it uh, that I'm recording, it's sitting, it's in my backpack. Well, actually, actually, it's plugged into the computer right now. Um, I also have a hard drive that's a copy of everything that's on my current hard drive. So all the projects that I've done that I haven't finished exist on two drives. Now, at the end of every night, I take one of those drives with me because if the studio burned down and I lost both copies of that, I I couldn't operate anymore. I don't think I wouldn't be in business. I've got like 120 hours of work into into a few projects there. Um, and there's probably like 20 current projects. So that's the one thing is like the the backup hard drive. But I always tell people when they come in, I'm like, okay, there's two copies of everything we've done. So tonight, when we leave, if the studio burns down, I'll still have your music. That's okay. And I said, if I leave tonight and I bike around a lot because I don't own a car, I'm like, if I go and get hit by a car and the hard drive's damaged, there's a copy of your music at home. But if the studio burns down and I get hit by a car, we're going to have a problem. But I mean, obviously, we'll have bigger problems than just the music. So... Simon, final question. So you tend to hear a lot from people of a particular vintage that music today just isn't what it used to be. Whether it was the 60s or 70s or 80s, they just say that music was better before. With your qualified opinion, do you think that there's any truth to this at all? No. No, not at all. I, I get I get pretty... I get annoyed when people are like, music just meant so much more back in the 70s and stuff. And I'm like, there was music that meant more. There's still music that means more. But you can't just pretend that all that shit wasn't there in the 70s and 80s, you know? Like, there's terrible... And again, I and not even to knock because I love it, but like, you know, it's like, yeah, when music was better, you know, staying alive. Like, that song meant so much. <laughs> it's like, no, it was just a disco song. like With a catchy hook. Exactly. But I love that song. I love the Bee Gees. I think they're great. But um, I think that, I don't know, my, a friend of mine often will be like, you know, oh, I just can't stand the stuff I heard on the radio today, like music these days or whatever. And then I'll go get him a record from like a Canadian artist that was released the last year. That's an incredible piece of work that belongs on the pedestal that the album in the seventies belong on, but it's not. And I'll be like, listen to this. And he'll come back and be like, oh my God, that was that was amazing. Like, I didn't even know about that. I'm like, yeah, you just have to search out for it. You just have to seek it out. Simon, thank you once again for taking the time to speak with me today. I truly appreciate it. It's, uh, it was great to catch up. Well, thank you. I feel bad because I, I now I want to like we're gonna have to talk again because I want to ask you questions. Like I haven't even asked you anything. So thanks for thanks for just talking about me for I don't know two and a half. What? How long is that? Yeah, I, I've got over three hours of yeah. recording here. Ooh. Yeah. So thanks for talking to me for so long. Ah, anytime. I don't know about you. But I've certainly thought to myself, yeah, entrepreneurship is something I could do. As if it were one of the options alongside lawyer, doctor, accountant, etc. I originally tried to get Simon's time for an interview in November, but between Christmas and his schedule, I couldn't get any time until the middle of January. He's a busy guy. And the thing that always gives me doubt is could I sacrifice most weekends? How much do I like the work? How much do I value free time? But of course, like most things, it's just not as simple as these questions. It's not like you're just simply exchanging free time for work. 
Simon is clearly remaining social. It's just part of his job. He's clearly doing activities he enjoys, but he's getting paid to do it. And most importantly, he's still satisfying his constant curiosity and desire to learn. It's just focused in a work-oriented manner. And this is what makes it so tough when you ask a simple question like, how many hours a week do you work? Because if you subtract all the moments he enjoys from the job, it might actually be far less than 40 hours a week. But it certainly doesn't hurt when you're driven to utilize every possible option and are, generally speaking, a very opportunistic person, like Simon seems to be. I don't know if he's ever taken an economics course, but he obviously has a sound understanding of opportunity cost. Being sufficiently independent sounds like a requirement for this level of entrepreneurship, which really shouldn't come as a surprise. Because if that guitarist's instrument gets out of whack, well, you'll save yourself some time and the client will save some money if you can just fix it right on the spot rather than reschedule. But ultimately, when you're in a people-oriented business, it's the people that end up making the difference. And from knowing Simon, he's not going to lose that anytime soon. So the next time you hear from me, we're headed back to the university campus. Except, instead of lessons learned from inside the classroom, it'll be from the field. The football field, to be exact. I'll be speaking with the associate head coach and general manager of the St. Mary's Huskies, A.J. Tufford. So how do you deal with a bunch of guys with varying maturities from age 18 to 28, all trying to pursue their passion? I have no idea. Although, I'm pretty sure that A.J. does. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks again for joining me.